0: Lord, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. And we pray that as we listen to you, that we'll realize the wretched poverty, the state that we are in, and also recognize the amazing grace that you've shown us in Christ Jesus. And we pray that we will live a life of praise as a result. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Not for a minute I thought this was a serious problem, Wendy said, about this minor chest problem that she had. She thought that she was having trouble, some some trouble breathing and with some fatigue, but she thought it was bronchitis at worst. So she reluctantly went to the hospital. She didn't bring the car with her, and it was a good thing that she didn't, because she had to stay for the next ten days. And a few weeks later, they found well, they found that the three the three of her arteries were blocked. One of them over 80% blocked. And a few weeks later, she had an open open heart surgery. She is now as healthy as one could be. Um, But she said that it easily could have been her end. A right diagnosis is very important, isn't it? We can seem okay on the surface, but have serious illness within us. One needs to see beneath the surface, beneath um, our physical, how how the glow of our skin, to be able to tell what is really wrong with us. I think this is the thing with most people as well. Most people think that they are okay especially in their spiritual life. They think they're healthy people who aren't so bad. If you ask them, they believe they're above average in almost everything, which really, statistically speaking, doesn't make any sense. Some people need to be below average. Some of you are below average in many things. Um, But they believe that God, if they ask them, well, God would let them into heaven because they haven't done anything really bad. But it's indeed very difficult to diagnose ourselves. This is what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 79. We, um, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We often overlook the total mess that is in ourselves, in our heart, and convince ourselves that all is okay. And the thing is, the culture tells us that we're great as well. I remember seeing a shampoo commercial, release the goddess within you. I, don't, I can't remember what that was. Or L'Oreal commercial, that, uh, you know, you should buy this because you're worth it. The assumption is that when you look deep inside of yourselves, there's this spring of humanity and goodness in you. More than that, there are encouragements that makes us, I think, even narcissistic to love ourselves, to love what's within ourselves. I think Facebook encourages it, doesn't it? (laughs) Since you carefully select the best part of who you are and try to convince others, and maybe perhaps ourselves, that that is who we are. Unflattering pictures and, and posts get removed, and we would never reveal Really, what is in our hearts on Facebook? Only the most proud thoughts and accomplishments make it on the profile. The message of the world is you are good. Perhaps maybe minor self-improvements are necessary. Um, Which is why I think self-help talks within the church and outside are so popular. You're mostly okay. You need to just tweak it. A little bit here and there. Fundamentally, we're great. That is the world's diagnosis. But that is decidedly not what the Bible says about our condition. All might seem okay on the surface, but God's word reveals to us what is in our hearts. So look at, take a look at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And just in case you think that he's talking to just a few people, he continues in verse 3, All of us, all of us, also lived among them at once. It is all of us, even Paul, who lived a model life as a Pharisaic Jew. Before his conversion... When the Bible looks at us, no matter our accomplishments, no matter how well we behaved throughout the week, no matter how much we volunteer our time, if we're not Christians, we stand dead in transgressions and sin. And this this death is not a figure of speech. It is the stark reality of not knowing our Savior Jesus. This diagnosis is dire. It's much dire than the diagnosis that Wendy received when she went to the hospital. Maybe we could say she was almost dead. But people who don't know relationships with Jesus are dead already. Even as though people go on living laughing. There's, uh, as if there's nothing wrong. The spiritual condition cannot be worse dead in our transgressions and sins. And the Bible explains why the predicament is out of our control. So look to verse 2. It says, it says, we used to follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The Bible says what we've suspected all along in ourselves. People have this illusion of independence But Paul says this is not the case. We are followers. People are followers. We're not very discerning. Everybody reads what everybody else reads. Everybody watches what everybody else watches. Everybody listens to the things that everybody else listens to. We think that we're independent, but we have become followers. Even teenagers, when they rebel, they take a predictable pattern. No wonder people's view of success, good life, what is right or wrong, are all the same. And going along the ways of this world is problematic because the person who rules this world, the, the, the ruler of this kingdom temporarily is Satan. The spirit who is now at work is disobedient. Evil is not an impersonal force. Peter says, the devil is like a glory lion, looking for someone to devour. So partly, the problem comes from outside of ourselves, the world and Satan. But Paul doesn't just end there. He doesn't want us to think that we are not culpable. He continues in verse 4. All of us lived among them at once, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following following its desires and thoughts. These are active verbs and subjects are all of us. We lived among them and not just lived among them, but gratified the cravings of our sinful nature and actively following its desires and thoughts. We're not helpless victims in the world. It's true that the world is corrupt. It's true that Satan rules the world. But we are active participants. The problem comes from within as well. We're corrupt. And we want to satisfy the cravings of our hearts. Let me just look at what what, what Jesus said about this. Mark chapter 7. Turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Mark chapter 7 verses 21 to 23. This is what Jesus said. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from within, inside, and make a man unclean. That is the state of our hearts. And on some level, people know that this isn't the way it should be because we are still created in in, in the image of God. We know that this isn't the way it should be. But on the other hand, we enjoy satisfying the cravings of our hearts because we have become sinful. Reading what the world reads, watching and listening to the things that that the people listen to and watch, doing the things that the world does, on some level, satisfies us. Because the sinful nature is still part of our nature. It's fallen and it's acquired nature. It's, It's beefed up through our habitual sins and the encouragements of the world. And it has become a part of us. And when we're satisfied, we feel guilty and gratified at the same time. And this is not on the level of doing. It's on the level of being. Who we are. We have fallen. We have become corrupt. And the result is bleak. Did you, did you catch this in verse 3, Ephesians 2, two verse 3? We have become, by nature, objects of wrath. More accurately, we have become God's objects of wrath. The church is so used to telling people that God loves them, that we forget to tell people that God is actually angry at the world. And make no mistake, God is angry towards the world, that rejects him. The wrath is an accurate description of how God feels toward, uh, towards the world. And it's not as if God has a temper problem, that he's throwing a tantrum, like many of us do. This wrath is neither spite, nor malice, nor animosity, nor revenge. God's wrath is never arbitrary, but it is this personal, righteous, and constant hostility towards evil it stems from his refusal, refusal to compromise with evil and the resolve to condemn it. And on a side note, we should be grateful, we should be so thankful that God is this way because this means evil will not go unpunished in this world. Evil will be taken care of by God. And it's hard to take in this diagnosis of ourselves, that we have become objects of wrath, dead in transgressions and sins. Stephen Jobs just passed away. In the famous, uh, the, the, the Stephen Jobs, the creator of Apple, in his famous commencement speech given to Stanford, he talked about his battle with cancer. And he talks about how that was a gift to him. And this is how he ends that speech. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinion drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to want and become. Everything else is secondary. Follow your dreams, follow your heart, because they already know what is right. I think that summarizes the world's view of humanity. Do what you think is right. Live in your own way. But once again, that is not the Bible's diagnosis of our condition. The heart is deceitful above all things, And beyond cure, who can understand it? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. The Bible says, don't live your life your own way. The Bible says, live your life according to God's way, according to God's will. It is because we fail to recognize the seriousness of our condition. We naively believe that superficial remedies can cure us. We naively believe that we can still live our lives our own way. We were dead. We were slaves. We were objects of God's wrath. So praise God for verse 4. Let's take a look at verse 4. But because of his great love for us. But because... The radical disease requires a radical remedy, John Sutt said, and the radical remedy has been given. But because—and did you see the word saved at the end of verse five? But because of God's great love, because of the richness of His mercy, because of His grace, God has saved us. And this salvation is more than forgiveness; it's deliverance from death slavery and wrath described in verses 1 through 3. And this resurrection, it's not resuscitation, but resurrection from the dead. Resuscitation goes back to the way that it was before. Resurrection is new creation. It's creating anew who we are. God has raised us in Christ Jesus, in verse 6. It could be described as recreation at the changing of the core of our being. Verse 10 says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. We're newly created in Christ Jesus. And this salvation continues. It's also the vanquishing of the one who holds power over this world. Look at 6b, verse, uh, the second half of 6 and he seated us with him in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus. The seating on the throne as an indication of the victory over evil. Evil is Christ's footstool, and we're seated with him. What is true of Christ is true of us. Hallelujah. The problem that was within, the problem that was without Our evil nature, the evil world, and the one who holds power over this world, are done away in Christ Jesus. This is the reality for the Christian. Whether you sense it, whether you feel it, whether you um, recognize it or not, this is the reality for you. God raised you. God seated, uh, seated you. God recreated you. And it's unbelievable that God does this. But why God does, does God do this? You know, all these words that describe God in, in this passage, aren't they? Great love in verse 4, rich in mercy, verse 4. Continues in verse 5, grace, richness of God's grace in verse 7, kindness, verse 7. Our salvation is described as a gift in verse 8. Paul uses all these words in in an attempt to describe the grandeur of what God has done for us. God has done this because He is exceedingly good. We deserved, uh, we deserved death, but God has given us life. We deserved slavery. God has given us freedom. We deserved wrath, but He exalted us and seated us next to Christ. But there is another reason specifically mentioned in this passage why God has done this rescue. In verse 7, "God has done this in order that in the coming ages he might show the in- incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus." God has given us mercy, grace, and kindness as a gift so that we might praise his incomparable riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. It was for his own glory. Upon retiring as a principal of Ridley Hall on Cambridge, the college unveiled a portrait of Reverend Gibbons, Uh, the principal. uh, Reverend Gibbons paid a uh, a compliment to the artist by saying that when people look at this painting in the future, they will not ask, who is this man? But they will ask, who drew this picture? In the same way, we won't be asking, when we are in heaven, who is Peter, James, John, John Studd, or all of you? And all the saints, we will marvel at God who had rescued each one of them from the bleakness Of their condition, from death, slavery, and wrath, we will ask how glorious God is. God has done this for His glory, and that is why there is no boasting in the Christian faith. God's work of salvation is precisely that it's God's work of salvation, it's God's rescue, subject of every sentence between 5 and 10, verses 5 and 10, is God himself. We have nothing to contribute. God has done all of it. And that was because our problem was so deep. It's not something that we could have done by ourselves. Those who don't know Jesus often say, I hope I can get into heaven it sounds like a humble statement, doesn't it? I hope I can get into heaven. But it's actually exceedingly arrogant to think that way, isn't it? Because what they're saying, what we're saying is, I hope I was good enough for a relationship with the living and holy and mighty God. I hope I can be, I was good enough to live with him. On the other hand, when we say, I know I can get into heaven. It sounds arrogant, but it is a humble statement. For here we affirm that we cannot do it, do it by ourselves. Because the problem was beyond us. It's too great for us. I know I can get there affirms the greatness of God's rescue. It is by grace we have been saved. Through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works, so no one can rest. No, no one can boast. Just think about that for a minute. I don't know how to do it. I mean, I, I was, as I was reflecting on this, I said to myself, I can get to heaven. I know I can get to heaven. Repeat that in your mind. I know. There's no doubt. There's no, there's no ambiguity. I know. I can get to heaven. Praise God. Praise God. So on the one hand, we, we do not believe that humanity is as dead and depraved, as St. Paul says. The lives that people live, are they so meaningless? A living death without God in the picture? On the other hand, we also find it so difficult to believe um, that we're actually exalted with Christ in the heavenly realms. Despite what you think, the bleakness of the world out there, a life without Christ, and the glory of life with Christ are both true. And the first application is that we should be struck dumb. We should be in awe as we think about this. I don't know if you know a married couple who just can't seem to believe that they're married to one another. They love one another so much. They think they're just not worthy of one another. At the same time, they just can't believe this other person loves them. I think that's just a bit of the sense that we get in St. Paul. If we truly believe our condition before and we truly believe how much God has loved us, this should be unbelievable. It should awe us. I remember a student who told me that he came to Christianity Explored to explore the Christian faith because he, he thought that Christians were just thankful people, unlike other people who were complaining all the time. He thought, he thought that Christians gave thanks, always gave praise. Well, all thanksgiving and praise must characterize our lives as Christians because we recognize our poverty, but also the richness of God. If you plumb the darkness of your own hearts to realize how God has seated us next to Christ in the heavenly realms, how could we not be thankful? But secondly, if you're a Christian, we must claim this identity for ourselves No matter how bound you feel to your personal sins, shortcomings, or sinful nature, no matter how you feel right now, this is the reality. God has raised you. God has seated you with Christ in the heavenly realm. You're no longer a follower. And that's a euphemism, isn't it? You're no longer a slave to your sinful nature or the world or the evil one. You have been raised again. You're freed from the bondage of sin and from the influence from the evil one. And stop acting like dead people. Stop acting like slaves. Paul has clearly presented two realms here in this passage. Which realm will define us? Paul says you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God has raised us with Christ. Our true identity is not determined by our personal characteristics, experiences, abilities, or even our sinful nature. It is determined by life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. And we must claim that identity. You are no longer a slave to the world or to yourself, to yourself, to your sinful nature. You're found in power in Christ Jesus. You're no longer the followers of the trends of this world you are the one who is constantly renewed by the transformation of your mind in Christ Jesus as long as we live in this fallen world the culture will try to shape us and we will be shaped by them to a certain extent but Jesus Christ must be our primary culture are we claiming that? Are we claiming Jesus as our primary identity, primary culture? Or are we still behaving like people slave to the sin and to the evil one? The end isn't here in its fullness, it's true. But the end time has begun with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. You have already been made anew in Christ. And finally, if you're not a Christian, why sit on the fence? Still, if you're trying to be good enough for God, drop the arrogance and accept God's grace and mercy. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. And I don't say that with any joy. You cannot be worthy of Christ. But God has given His Son to the world. He had died your death. He rose again so we can, we can rise with him, so we can be seated with him in the heavenly realms. And this is undeserved. This is an undeserved gift of grace to you. Um, June was my best friend, one of my best friends in, in, in college. Um, he's also a pastor now in California. But I remember being so struck by his testimony, how he became a Christian. And this is how he became a Christian. He said that he went out. Uh, he, he was in a retreat in high school. He lived in a very, very wealthy, affluent neighborhood in California. Um, and this this retreat was filled with them. But he wasn't really sure if he believed everything that he um, was taught in the church. So he was asking God to reveal Himself to him. When he had this vision, he saw this big auditorium filled with his friends. They were popular, smart kids athletic kids, all were there, but they seemed completely different from themselves. He said that every single one of them seemed emaciated, dry, skeleton. They didn't seem to have any life in them. They were dead people walking around. He awoke from his vision and gave his life to Christ. He believed that he had seen the world through God's eyes. And just as the doctor saw in Wendy's heart, you couldn't see with our naked eyes. June believed that God had given him a glimpse of reality that is much an accurate vision of the reality than the one that meets our eyes. Whether you believe June or not, believe the Bible's diagnosis. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because, but because of His great love for us, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved. Amen.